the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Northern Alliance Radio Network, the longest-running conservative talk show in the Twin Cities. It's great to be back in Minnesota today. Political analysis of the good, the bad, and the outright crazy. Now, here's your headline act, Mitch Berg. Welcome back to Twin Cities and World. It's the howling winter wind beneath the right wing. The show that says send us your tired, huddled masses yearning to see red and green. (laughs) The Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, The Patriot. My name, Mitch Berg. My blog, shotinthedark.info. This is the closer edition of the, excuse me, the headliner edition of the Northern Alliance Radio Network. I've only been doing this for, what, six years under this format. The the headliner edition of the Northern Alliance Radio Network. Brad Carlson will have his special Christmas broadcast tomorrow at 2 o'clock. And King Banyan will be back every Saturday morning from 9 to 11 on our sister station, AM 1440, The Businessman. But for right now, it's just you and me and my special Christmas broadcast. A a broadcast where I kind of want to take a break from this show's usual focus on current events and politics in Minnesota and nationwide and worldwide, quite frankly, and focus on the time of the season we're in right now. And you can't really focus on this time of the season without focusing on the reason the season exists which really comes down to this passage from the the Gospel of Luke uh, in the Bible, of course. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place uh, while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So if you're a conservative right there, you can also see, right, right there you can see the first problem. Government is poking its nose into things. I'm being a little facetious here, but only a little. Uh, verse four. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, for, uh, to Judea rather, to Bethlehem, the, uh, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and lineage of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, they came. The, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So they're in this situation because the Roman equivalent of the IRS, I should say the Judean equivalent of the IRS, couldn't organize people any better, so they just forced them to get up and move around in the middle of winter, Uh, which if you've ever been a small business person in Minnesota, sounds perhaps vaguely familiar. I don't know. I... I'm being facetious. I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, although it's hard to do radio with your tongue in your cheek if you catch my drift. But it's it, it leads up to, to one of the themes of this Christmas broadcast, which is this. Really, I want to talk about Christmas and, and what it means, well, first of all, to me personally, because I think that's 
has something to do with why I see Christmas the way I do. I want to talk about what it means to America. I mean, it's obvious what it means to Christians and Christianity, but what it means to this country as a whole is another important uh, another important subject I think we need to talk about. And if you are a conservative, and if you're listening to this station, the odds are probably about 95 out of 100 that you are, I want to talk about what Christmas actually means to you, to us, really, to to those of us who, who maintain a belief in conservative principles at this time of year, at this time in history. And we'll be getting to that over the course of the next uh, almost two hours here right now. So, first of all, I just got to say, I, I have always loved Christmas, and it has always meant a lot to me. Going back to my earliest childhood, I grew up in in rural North Dakota, and so as befits the location, the odds were much, much, much better e- than even that Christmas was going to be bitterly, bitterly cold. And that's my main memory of Christmas. Uh, usually going over to my grandmother's house in, in Jamestown, which being a traditional Norwegian grandmother always smelled like uh, every kind of Christmas food you can imagine, especially lefse, the best uh, Christmas dish of all if you're of Scandinavian descent. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, by gosh, find out. Uh, it, this is the time of year to find lefse. Even store-bought lefse is better than nothing. Uh, my, mom, uh, my, my mom would actually learn the recipe, but my grandmother on my father's side was still the master. Sometimes my... Uh, grandparents on my mother's side would come to town from Bismarck, and then it would be a big party. We all jam into our house. And sometime along about 6 o'clock, when it was pitch blackout, uh, we would make our way down to church, the United Presbyterian Church in Jamestown. And I remember the the feeling of the, the, the cold air, and it was always unbelievably cold. I mean, I being from North Dakota, I always joke to Minnesotans about how much colder it is up there. It, Except it's never really a joke. It really was cold. I mean, the kind of cold where you breathe it in, you can feel the moisture inside your nose freezing up. And I remember that feeling as my dad would park, usually uh, we would park a block or two from church, which always struck me as a little odd because we lived four blocks from the church. Why bother piling in the car, piling back out with my brother and sister? You know the drill. We would pile back out of the car. We would walk to the church. We'd get to the church. They'd hand out the little candles with the little cardboard shields. Back then, by the way, this being in the 1970s and maybe the very early 1980s, the candles were real, actual, honest-to-peat wax candles that they would have ready to go for the the Christmas service. And it was a candlelight service. And we'd all crowd into the pews because, of course, it's one of the two uh, most crowded days of the year at pretty much any Christian uh, denomination. And the, my nose would gradually thaw out, and gradually you'd start to smell. I mean, just the memory of the smell of that candlelight service is one of the most most ingrained memories in my in my young adult life. They say smell brings out memories more than just about any other sense, and and whenever it comes to candlelight services, I'm inclined to believe it. Anyway, we'd wait through the service, and the the minister at the time was. Uh, smart enough to keep it relatively brisk, but yet very much on point. I was blessed to have a brilliant minister as a child, a fellow named Bill King, who passed away in the last year here, uh, as this is recorded. And 
It was odd. He was very far out to the left, and he was completely gobsmacked when he heard that I'd grown up to be a conservative talk show host. Well, sorry, Reverend King. I'm sorry to disappoint you in so many ways, but he was a, a major influence on my life in so many other ways, not politics. You know, life is tough. Wear a helmet. But he kept it brisk, and we'd get to the final part of us where the, the ushers would come down the aisles and light the, the candles of the people at the center, and they'd pass the light down, and it would get to me, and I finally got to be old enough to have a candle of my very, very own, and just the smell of all that burning wax in the sanctuary was just one of the most intense memories I have, and that, that feeling of heat, and not just the physical heat, but the warmth I felt as someone who was gradually turning into a believer at this formative stage of my life. And that feeling, I can honestly say, has never left me. And we'll, we'll come back to what people feel or or don't feel about Christmas in a little bit here. But it's just one of those things that, that makes me feel good. And it's a feeling I like to try and pass on to people the best I can. And we'll We'll talk about the years of passing that feeling on to actual other people later on in this broadcast. But the other feeling that came up uh, smelling the, the candle wax, especially when we extinguished the candles, was time to get up, get home, and open the presents. Of course, when you're a kid, that's always uh, the important part. And we would make our way back through the bitter, bitter cold and make our way back home. And, of course, the house was always a little extra warm, probably because Dad liked it that way. And partly because there were a lot of extra people in there. We had grandmas and grandpas, sometimes aunts and uncles, sometimes friends of the family popping by. And it was warm in there. And that up against the, the, the cold outdoors, that always felt really, really good. And just that, that feeling of the cold getting slowly overwhelmed down in my bones by by the warmth. Not only the, the physical warmth from the furnace, but the the actual warmth of the season and the family and the the whole idea with people who love you and care about you is just one of the most powerful memories I have as a child. And that's very important to me. And and I hope it's important to, to, to all of you. It, and I hope you have that or, or at least that you can acquire some portion of that in your life. And I, I say that to qualify what I'm saying about the holiday here, because as we've discovered in recent years in this country, not everyone has the same feeling about the holidays. I mean, for starters, as we are reminded, if you are a Christian who works in a not necessarily Christian workplace or hangs out with people who are not necessarily devout people of the Christian faith, there are other faiths in this society, and all of many of them, not all of them, but many of them share holy days this time of year. Of course, the, the people of the Jewish faith celebrate Hanukkah. Uh, Kwanzaa, of course, is an artificial holiday, but it's a holiday celebrated by people in the community. Uh, the Muslim uh, holiday of Eid takes place not too far from Christmas. It's not really in the season, but sometimes it gets pretty close and sort of falls into the same general time slot. And so you you wind up being a little bit sensitive about it for that reason. But it goes beyond that for some people. There's kind of an ugly backlash against Christmas. And I'm not really talking about the so-called war against Christmas that, that some conservatives, especially Christian conservatives, talk about. I, I believe there is one. 
I believe it exists. I, I believe there are people out there in our society, in these secular and politically correct uh, realms of our society, who are, in fact, waging something of a war on Christmas. But I think it goes deeper than that, and I think in its own way, it's a lot more troubling than that. I think it's something more pernicious, and I think it's a symptom of a much more pernicious ill in our society than just a war on Christmas with, with Grinches going after Christians and people of other faiths or of no faith whatsoever, quite frankly, who at least take the basic spirit of Christmas seriously, the spirits of of brotherhood, of, of forgiveness, of sharing, of 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 getting along together, even if by all rights you shouldn't. There's a backlash against that. And it's it's been troubling me lately. And when we come back on this broadcast, I'd like to talk a little bit about the backlash, not necessarily the war. Let's just call it the Cold War on Christmas. This is a special Christmas broadcast of the Northern Alliance Radio Network on AM 1280, The Patriot. My name is Mitch Berg. I hope you will join me in just a couple minutes here. Now there's a tree in the Grand Hotel. One in the park as well. The sturdy kind that doesn't mind the snow. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. <laughs> Soon the bells will... Oh, the weather but the fire is so delightful and since we've no place to go let it snow let it snow welcome back it's the northern alliance radio network a christmas special for the Northern Alliance Radio Network. I'm Mitch Berg, by the way. And you can read me every weekday, almost every weekday, uh, at my blog, shotinthedark.info. I'm also found on the web at True North, which is looktruenorth.com. It's the address. It's the Center for Center-Right Political Thought in the Upper Midwest. So in case this broadcast isn't enough for you, and, and why would it be? <laughs> you can read more of me then. And, of course, I'm heard every Saturday from uh, 1 to 3 here on AM 1280, The Patriot. I, I've been talking about what Christmas means to me and why I hope it means something good to you. I'm not going to get into the political stuff yet. This is all very personal at this point, but but politics starts with the personal. And while I don't want to politicize the holiday, not at all. In fact, that's the last thing I want to do. I do want to push back on some of the things that culture has done to Christmas. Now, I, I told you in the first segment what Christmas means to me, and and there are people who will scoff and say, ah, you're all sentimental. Yeah, you're right. I am sentimental about Christmas. You're absolutely right. Anyone, and, and I will I will be the first to say, I, I had a beaver cleaver childhood. May every child be blessed to have a childhood like I had. I, I make no bounds about the fact that I had as close to a perfect child childhood as a child could have at that point in history, which is not to say it was perfect, but it was darn good, and my parents did their best, and their best was pretty darn good. And my Christmas wish would be that every child alive today could have a childhood like that. Minimal complications, minimal stress, no abuse, 
uh, no, and yet some expectations and standards you're supposed to keep up to in a sense of, most of all, just a sense of actual family and belonging to something. Okay, so I'm sentimental about Christmas. Big whoop. Well, not everyone is. In fact, there is something of a backlash against Christmas going on these days. And there are those who call it a war on Christmas. And and they, they, they bring that up whenever you hear the stories that pop up every year about offices, especially government offices, banning Christmas displays from their office space or ordering Christmas displays taken down from city property, for example, uh, or government-run property. Uh, and it's it seems outrageous. It seems to be the focus of, of an excessively anal-retentive reading of the Establishment Clause, but then that's why lawyers make the big bucks and you and I don't, unless you're a lawyer, in which case, well, you know. And You've also seen this taken to the opposite extreme. I mean, cities who say, okay, one party gets to post you know, to, to put up a Christmas display. Every faith gets to put up a Christmas display, which means you get a bunch of giggly goths who call themselves a Satanist church putting up a monument to Satan during the holiday season. It, it happens, and it's all very cutesy, giggly fun for a bunch of arrested adolescents. And it's designed to shock people, and it does, and people act like the, the world is going to, to heck in a handbasket. And and they're right, but perhaps not for the reasons they think they are. There, there's, I, I've been listening to people's reactions to Christmas over recent years, and I've, I've noticed, and I've mentioned this on other broadcasts, so if this is all familiar to you, pardon me, but I, I'm going to mention it again because I think it's important. In addition to the fairly traditional point of view about Christmas that, that people like I and many of you hold to and including many of the almost all the hosts on this station including hosts like Dennis Prager and Michael Medved who notwithstanding the fact that they're conservative Jews hold to a very traditional definition of Christmas not much different than you and I would while it's not part of their faith tradition they get it but there's a lot of people out there, people who should know better, who do not, in fact, get it. And I've boiled it down to a half a dozen categories. And if you've heard these in the past, indulge me. I'll be done with it in a few minutes here. But these half a dozen categories of people who aren't so much waging war on Christmas as sort of giggling at the whole idea of it in the first place or or negating the whole idea of it in the first place or acting like the idea of Christmas is an imposition or just a reason to be depressed about the season and about humanity, uh, are, I think, almost a greater danger to what the holiday is supposed to be to you and me than the so-called war on Christmas. I'll explain. The first group is a group that I call the National Public Radio Malaysaholics. And if you don't listen to National Public Radio, good. Keep not listening to it. It's a cesspool of progressive mediocrity. Actually, there's some excellent programming, but you have to grit your teeth and bite your tongue and put up with a lot of overt liberal bias that, honest to Pete, doesn't believe that it's liberally biased. Anyway, I digress. Starting around Thanksgiving, if you listen to any of their non-news programming, their produced programming, anything from uh, the the Chris Thiel show to uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, to any of the other, even the cooking show in some cases. Uh, Delicious Dish, no, no, what was that called? Uh, Splendid Table, thank you very much. 
they'll start whenever they refer to the the holidays to Christmas in particular, they refer to it as some sort of onerous annual chore that involves trekking back to a hometown you forsook decades ago in some cases years ago for hipper, more creative surroundings, going back and spending time, <clears throat> excuse me, being forced to spend time with relatives you really don't like that much anymore, that you'd rather not be spending time with anymore if you could possibly avoid it. Uh, trying to avoid political discussions, especially with your benighted, decidedly unhip, older, more conservative relatives. Or in recent years, it's taken a new turn because, of course, we've seen the specter on uh, in all liberal media, and national public radio is liberal media, of families theatrically rent asunder by the fact that some members of the family <clears throat> voted Donald Trump. I, I mean, we've seen people, we've seen families torn apart, almost like in the, during the Civil War. We've seen people opt not to talk with each other for this foreseeable future because one party voted differently than the others. Anyway, one way or another, the entire holiday season is seen by the national public radio malaysaholic as a chore that must be endured or not endured, perhaps self-medicated out of existence. I mean, you, you hear a lot of references to staying drunk through the entire holidays or or to, to finding alternatives to spending time with your family and enduring their company and their presence during the holiday season. And I get it. Not every family gets along. I also get it, being a conservative in St. Paul, that a lot of People on the left side of the aisle don't have much tolerance for dissent. Was it that Dennis Prager says conservatives think liberals are wrong, liberals think conservatives are evil? And you see that in the point of view of the national public radio malaysaholic. A shorter term for them might be the Christmas Eeyores. If you're familiar with the story of Winnie the Pooh, then you know Eeyore. The donkey that could never get excited or happy about anything. You know the ones I'm talking about. That's the National Public Radio Malaysaholic. The people who, who regard this potentially most wonderful of all seasons, both personally and symbolically, as just some bit of social drudgery they have to endure before they can get to the New Year's party. And that is merely annoying. Uh, also on the annoying side of these six character, uh, characteristic personalities that I have come to vex myself and perhaps some of you over the holiday season is the more PC than thou crowd. I mean, the ones where you say, Merry Christmas, and let's say, it's not just Christmas, okay? It's also Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and whichever other holiday, or Festivus. We'll come back to Festivus in a moment here. And, and and I've run into this before with coworkers who were not of the Christian faith, and to which I said, to which I replied, it's a general wish of of well being to someone, whether you share my tradition or not. It's an expression of of brotherhood and camaraderie and love. And of course, they could not have that. No, not good enough. You have to you, your expressions have to meet their standards of acceptability before they will accept it with any sort of good grace at all. As if, for example, and, and Dennis Prager and Michael Medved both say more or less the same thing, as if if they were to wish me a happy Hanukkah, 
I would respond, I'm not Jewish. What the heck are you doing? No. What kind of a socially inept buffoon would you have to be to take someone's good wish, expression of well-wishing for you, and turn it into an insult, an attack, something worth getting into an argument over? The answer is lots and lots of social ineptitude. And so I just call those the the more PC than not crowd. Oh, and my special favorite among the more PC than thou crowd are the ones who have to point out to you that Christmas is actually an appropriation of a pagan holiday. It's really just the solstice, they say. Well, that's the point. Christmas appropriates a pagan holiday in much the same way that Christianity appropriates sinners. That's the point. (laughs) I don't dare say that in public these days because it's just an argument waiting to happen. But my patience wears thin at times. We got four more of these categories to go. And then we're going to start talking about what the holiday means to you and me and to this country and to this society and to the conservative movement when we return on this special Christmas broadcast of the Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, The Patriot. Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Welcome back, Twin Cities and World. It's the Northern Alliance Radio Network. My name, Mitch Berg. You can follow us on hashtag N-A-R-N on Twitter, by the way. It's short for Northern Alliance Radio Network. Uh, You can also uh, follow us on Facebook. We're called the Northern Alliance Radio Network. Unsurprisingly, on Facebook, you can definitely follow us there. And, of course, at my blog, shotinthedark.info, I-N-F-O, uh, it's been going for going on 15, going on 16 years now, not going anywhere anytime soon. So I've been talking about the cultural challenges that Christmas as a season has, and as an observance and as a, as a cultural institution has been facing in recent years. And I've been through the first two of the six categories I've observed, the National Public Radio uh, Malaysiac and the more PC than now uh, person who corrects you on whether it's Christmas or just the holiday season. You know the type. Now, the next one, I'm a little, I'm a little, I have to step a little lightly about this because I know, I, as I said in the first segment, I'm an incredibly lucky person to have grown up with a, a childhood that I wouldn't trade with anyone in the world. Uh, I mean, would I trade a few things? Would I have been the star of the baseball team? Yeah. But as a general rule, I wouldn't have traded anything. I had a very wonderful childhood, and my associations with the holiday season are just wonderful things to me. Not everyone's as lucky, and I, I'm not insensitive to that. I, I am not by any means uh, aiming this at people who have reasons to perhaps not be completely turning cartwheels down the street happy uh, about the holiday season. I do get it. I understand it. Perhaps more deeply than you might, under, might, might, might know, and I'll explain that in a little bit as well. But the next category does exist. They, I call them the humbug, or you can maybe call them Scrooge or the Grinch if you prefer. They all work. They're the person who just finds it expedient and maybe funny, maybe just part of their personality to kind of 
pour orange juice in people's Wheaties just to be oblique about it when it comes to the holiday season. You say, hey, big plans for the holiday. Oh, I hate the holidays. We all know the type. Uh, we, we've have all worked with people like that. Perhaps we have people like that in our families. Perhaps you are a part of a family that has that as its tradition. I don't know. But it's tiresome, and it's... And if, and if it's not born of a genuine trauma, then it's kind of self-indulgent and selfish. As Dennis Prager says, you have a duty to people around you to be happy and just spreading misery for no good reason other than you feel miserable is kind of an unearned self-indulgence that, that no one ever really deserves. And certainly the people around you never do. And, and so I, I, while I don't say anything about it, unless I happen to know that the person is just being kind of a weenie, uh, the humbug is certainly a, 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 a trying element of modern Christmas. Now, the next one is a little less understandable. I mean, I get that, again, people sometimes have some deep traumas with the holidays, but then there are the people for whom the mention of the holiday is a trigger warning. They hear Merry Christmas, they hear Happy Holidays, and suddenly it is an excuse to pelt you with all the trauma that they associate with the season. Whether that trauma is something that they actually grew up with, something that they actually survived, and I know they are out there. If you grew up in an abusive family with an alcoholic uh parents or two or more, then it's entirely possible that holidays really were a traumatic thing for you. But there are people out there who, who, who treat the mention, the existence of the holiday season as if it is a threat to them. And, and in the case of people who haven't actually suffered actual threats, actual assaults, actual attacks on their person during the holiday season, or that you can legitimately associate with the holiday season, especially the ones who politicize the holiday season for purposes of, of having that trigger warning to be able to throw in people's faces when the holiday comes up. Well, then it's, it's, uh, th- then it's a self-indulgence. Then it's just basically saying, hey, forget about you, forget about all about you, let's make this about me and the trauma that I have assumed, because there are people who are born into trauma, alcoholic parents, mentally ill parents, family problems of all kinds, poverty, and then there are people who go out and find things to be triggered about. I am reminded of a former co-worker who used to uh, get extremely upset uh, ba- based on political facts about the, the idea and she, by the way, this, this person was a was a fairly militant, committed atheist, who saw any mention of the holidays as a, as an excuse to go out and 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 run down an accounting of all of the problems that that this person believed Christianity and that faith in general, but really Christianity, had brought unto the world, and and, and this it, it it becomes beyond tiresome. It becomes a personal challenge in some ways not to lose one's cool because, of course, it's easy 
if you don't think about it that hard, to pile a lot of the world's sins on top of organized faith, especially, and in the case of today's atheists, solely Christianity, because you don't see them attacking Islam, and God knows you don't see them attacking Judaism, but they will go after Christianity like a pit bull digging into a pork chop. And that, I will confess, has tried my patience more than once. And I'm sure you know the type. And if you don't, consider yourself, well, the beneficiary of a holiday blessing. May it continue with you forevermore. Category number five of the social challenges to the holiday season, I call this person Father Festivus. And, And they deliver their attack on the season with kind of a ugly laugh and a grit and a, and a, and a, and a chuckle kind of like a the, the school bully who gets the chuckle in by giving you a snuggie you know pulling your underwear out from under your pants and, and yanking it up real tight and then laughing about that and it's the sort of the cruel laughter that you get in those sorts of situations and and it's not always intended to be malicious and I try not to take it that way because the malice comes with category number six. But Father Festivus is, is someone who, who who would just love to turn the holidays into something else, something in their image. And it's it's a takeoff on George Costanza, the character uh, played by Jason Alexander in the old Seinfeld show, who didn't celebrate Christmas. He celebrated Festivus, which is celebrated around an aluminum pole with the airing of grievances and feats of strength. And, and it was a tongue-in-cheek made-up holiday that some people have come to actually observe in real life. And they've these people, the people of this ilk, will will take that frequently a little bit further. For example, I had a coworker at one point who, whenever the the the, the subject of the holidays came up, said, Yeah, since it really is just co-opting a pagan holiday, I want to celebrate a Norse Christmas. Make sacrifices to Odin and Thor and to, to Loki and it's Okay, well, I mean, feel free. It's a free country. First Amendment guarantees you your right to religious expression any way you want to, and I will fight to the death to defend that right for you. But you got the, I at least, got the distinct impression that this former coworker was doing this to get a rise out of people who believed in some version of the traditional version of Christmas. I mean, the Chris, Christian version of Christmas. And, of course, it comes with the inevitable, it's really pagan. Oh, not Like all of us who have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, no, it's not anymore. Uh, and pagans can feel free to celebrate their solstice, more power to them. Again, free country. Fight to the death to defend it. I will. But just this sort of cute, hip, too cool for school, minimalization of, of the other people's beliefs which I, as a Christian, don't partake in on their beliefs. It's apparently okay for them. And that's fine. It's, it's uh, Life's tough. You wear a helmet. The last one, however, is the one that, that bothers me the most, and, and I see more and more of them out there. I, I call them the macroaggressors because unlike the person who gets triggered, this is a person who responds back to the idea of Christmas with genuine anger, and they, they, they respond to the idea of the traditional notion of Christmas with something that I, will, that I can't call anything but hatred with a, with a clear, honest conscience, because that's what it is. 
they they hate something about what Christmas stands for, and maybe any other religious observance. But let's be honest, modern militant atheism is aimed at Christianity, not Judaism, not Islam, not boot, least of all Buddhism. And that is something we're seeing more and more these days. We're seeing people from the other five categories I listed graduating upward from the starter drugs that they started with to seeing Christmas as a macroaggression, to seeing it as a, as a colonialist way of, of, of oppressing people around uh, them, as a way Christians oppress people around them today. And I, I want to respond to that and to really all six of them in this last segment of the hour on my special Christmas broadcast on the Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, The Patriot. Go nowhere. We've got another hour to go after this. So Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to all of you. And don't go anywhere. Cities and world. It's the Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM twelve eighty. The Patriot. My name, Mitch Berg. My blog, shotinthedark.info. My wish to you a happy, blessed, and meaningful holiday season. Whatever holiday you observe. For most of you, it is no doubt the Christian holiday, Christmas. But if you're observing Hanukkah, if you're observing uh, any other faith tradition or just the personal traditions of the season, I hope you have a great one. I truly do. I'm here to defend Christmas, however, not just the religious observance of Christmas, but the social observance of a season that to me, and I think to most of you, is about the birth of Christ and celebrating the the birth of the person a Christian believes is their Lord and Savior, but also the goodness, the innocence, the redemption and rebirth that this brings to the world. And that we hope as people of faith, of the Christian faith in our case, to bring to the world and and hope to propagate through the world, ideally by our example. And in response to that, I have mentioned six different classes of people. I call them the new Grinches, the, uh, the, the people who are becoming more numerous over time here and are kind of pecking away at the outskirts of what the holiday means to people. The the the, the national public radio malaise-aholics, the PC crowd who just can't let Christmas be about Christianity. It's always got to be an equal opportunity thing, which has its merits on some levels, perhaps, and becomes tyrannical on others. The humbug, the person who can't resist inflicting their depression on the season. Now, that's closely related to the national public radio, malaise-aholics, but it's, it's personal, not cultural in their case. Uh, the trigger warning uh, monger who 
basically sees this as a, as a, as a, the holidays as a grievance to be combated against them. Father Festivus, the person for whom other people's faith, tradition, beliefs, sentiments are just a big joke to be mocked and, and made fun of. And finally, the, the macro aggressors, people who who are aggressively hostile to the idea of Christmas and really to the people who celebrate Christmas. I, I consider it a a symptom of the militant atheism that uh, the particularly militant breed of atheism that has kind of come to the forefront in the last couple of decades. I don't get me wrong. I have I have friends who are atheists who simply are skeptics or just happen not to believe. I disagree with them. I feel somewhat sorry for them, but they're not necessarily bad people. They're not bad people. There are people, on the other hand, uh, of the Richard Dawkins, uh, Samuel Harris school of modern atheism, for whom the war against faith is pretty much exactly that. And I think they are a, a significant chunk of the people I, I call the macro aggressors, people who, for whom I, I hate to call it a war on Christmas, but it really is kind of a kind of an atheistic intellectual jihad against not just Christmas, but against faith. Anyway, and I, on the one hand, being someone who is not 20-something anymore, uh, as someone who has overcome most of the hormones that used to lead him to start swinging fists uh, when provoked, uh, not that they were ever had that much of a control on me, but every once in a while, you, most of you guys remember what it's like. You suffer some insult that you just can't take anymore. And you at least had the urge to start throwing things. Well, I've overcome all that. And so I'm pretty much okay most of the time letting people be themselves, even if that is a, a, a passive-aggressive, ugly thing. Even if it takes its gratuitous shots at me, my beliefs, my sentiments, my faith, my being in some in many respects. I figure it's their problem, not mine. But yet, I think it's worth fighting against that point of view of Christmas for a couple of reasons. For starters, uh, especially for the the malaysaholics and the humbugs, inflicting misery on other people is just self-indulgent. Dennis Prager puts it well. I may have mentioned this before when he says there is a duty to be happy. You have a duty not to be miserable around other people because it is a self-indulgence. It is an imposition on other people. And stop it already. I, I also say this because at various points in my life, when I was under a lot of personal and emotional and financial stress uh, and stress that I had to partake in because of various parties around me, I made the resolution to just say, I, I do not want my kids growing up like this. I do not want people around me grow, going through life like this. I am going to be happy for Christmas, no matter how hard I have to work at it. And I did. And as Dennis Prager points out in his Happiness Hour, which, by the way, I, I started doing this 10 years before I ever heard of Dennis Prager. But Dennis Prager's right. When you start acting happy, your chances of becoming happy go way up. And that's important. And I think it's important that we at least pass that idea along to people, even if they're not willing to adopt the, 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 the feeling of the season. 
at least give them the idea that it's not okay to dump buttermilk in the Wheaties of those who do. But there's something much deeper than that, I think, and that is something Andrew Breitbart used to say when he was alive, uh, that politics is downstream of culture. And what makes, what, what many focus on in our culture, myself included, is, is an important thing. It's, it's, culture is the little things. I'll put it that way. There's a saying that liberals are, are fond of saying that, that uh, I think Barack Obama popularized it. Government is the things we do together. And that's not really true. Government is the things we do together because we have to. We pay for police. We pay for a military. We pay for roads and courts and, and a lot of other junk we probably don't need but gets forced on us. Anyway, that's a separate argument. Culture is the things we do together because we're human. Government didn't bring us the Beatles, it didn't give us Christmas, it didn't bring us baseball. Those are parts of American or Western culture. It's a certain fact that government didn't bring us Christmas. That's part of Western culture as well. Culture is what we do with other people because we're human. And the idea of having at least a part of the year that we ideally spread through the rest of the year where you treat other people well. You at least try to approach the world with a sense of rebirth and redemption. Even if you're not feeling it, you do it anyway because it's the right thing to do and maybe thereby start to feel it yourself. That's a part of the culture that's worth defending against the rot that others, the non-believers, the the afflicted, sadly, the and the, the willfully afflicted and those who afflict others would wish upon it. And that's why it's important. That's why I would like to not only to wish you all a Merry Christmas, but to hope you do the same to others around you. Another hour to go on the Northern Alliance Radio Network Christmas special. Go nowhere. This is AM 1280, The Patriot. Let us know, let us know, let us know. When we finally kiss goodnight, how I'll go. This is the Northern Alliance Radio Network, the longest-running conservative talk show in the Twin Cities. It's great to be back in Minnesota today. Political analysis of the good, the bad, and the outright crazy. Now, here's your headline act, Mitch Berg. Welcome back, Twin Cities and World. It's the wind beneath the right wing, the bright, shining spot of green and red in the sea of dismal, dingy institutional blue. It's the Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, The Patriot. My name is Mitch Berg. I'm wishing you and yours a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a, a blessed whatever it is you celebrate this time of year. I, I neither apologize for Christmas nor wish to stomp on anyone else's traditions. Whatever it is you celebrate, I hope you do it well, and I hope you have a wonderful and blessed time doing it this time of year. I spent the first hour talking about things that, that bother me about the way Christmas is, is practiced today and about the way some elements of our society have, I won't say waged war on Christmas, but really sort of perverted its intent and in some cases sort of hijacked the the feeling of the season uh as as bono said at the beginning of the movie rattle and hum uh when the song helter skelter started playing he said charles manson stole this 
song from the Beatles, We're Here to Steal It Back. I, I, I intend this broadcast to note the fact that, that the, some of the intent, some of the feel of Christmas has been stolen by people who are nece- not necessarily fondly disposed to the holiday. And I, and I think a lot of you are here to steal it back. And I'd like to do exactly that today. Uh, I, I stole it back from the cultural Grinches earlier in the broadcast during the first hour. I'd like to take a, an hour and steal it back from the Grinches that work in the world of politics and in the world of theology to some extent and in, and in the world of, of, of how society runs itself. Because there are some parallels between the Christmas story and the story of conservatism and the story of this country itself that are absolutely vital, that are absolutely important that you not miss, that, that, that are important for you to carry on and pass on to those around you, I think, might humble two cents worth, and that, quite frankly, are things that society needs to be aware of. There are parallels between the two stories, not wanting to get too overreachy or too melodramatic here, but that, that do matter, that are, that are important. And one of the biggest ones, I think, is wrapped up in the very origins of the season. Uh, and, and the origin of the season is something you can't miss if you've listened to any of the Christmas carols and Christmas hymns that, that those of us of the Christian faith will be singing in church uh, come Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Uh, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Christ was sent to earth as a king, but not born as a king here on earth, born as the as a child of a of a of a couple of impoverished Judeans uh, who were being bossed hither and yon by their puppet government at the time, and and this idea, the idea that God would come to earth as a humble human being, not not a king, not a prince, someone not someone who used divinity, or actually used power to claim divinity, but in fact was quite the opposite. Someone whose divinity was not connected to earthly power, at least not overtly, and 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 yet uh, was the Son of God, and yet was completely divine. And and to put this in context, you have to remember that throughout all of human history, up until fairly recently, in fact, you have the idea fomented largely by kings for reasons that should be obvious to all of you, the idea that the king was God on earth, as the pharaohs were to the ancient Egyptians, as as some Roman emperors were. Uh, in Rome, as some kings and emperors and and uh, other monarchs have been throughout history have, have declared themselves, and and not up up to by the way, including the emperor of Japan up until 1945, who was recognized by his people as 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 God on Earth, as as a human and a god. And this is the way most throughout most of human history, most humans who have ever walked this planet have had someone ruling them who either before the Christian era and in much of the world up 
through the Christian era, up to today in some cases, considered themselves to be God walking among us here on earth, ruling them, or even in the Christian era, in Christian countries, a monarch who considered himself to be divinely ordained by God to rule. The idea that a king was a king because God had blessed him with or her, in the case of a queen, uh, had blessed him or her with the talent, the position, the authority to rule others. And this is, even in Christian countries, a common way of attributing the, the power of a king, divine right to monarchy. The idea that not only, if even if the king is not a god, him or herself, that they would be acting out the will of God on earth, which is certainly an impression you want to give if you are a king and you want to impress the peasants. So the idea that God could be born a carpenter in Galilee was an incredibly radical notion to humans 2,000 years ago. Just as 1,700 years later, the idea that the individual would have some worth above and beyond society, that the individual was capable of self-rule, and that indeed government should be, rather than a divinely ordained king supported by a group of divinely ordained nobles, supported in turn and from below by a group of selected nobles, the knights, who would, whose duty was to defend the king and, and the layers of monarchy and aristocracy above them, and below them all the peasants and the merchants and the farmers and all the, all the commoners. The idea that, in fact, rather than that, government could be and society could be a free association of equals, that people were capable of governing themselves, that indeed every man and woman eventually could be their own king, or at least collaborate with other kings in, in ruling themselves, in, in providing order to a society, to, to protecting and defending a society, and to, to giving a society rules that everyone could live by, was equally revolutionary, and, and in fact was precisely that. We fought a revolution over it. Other countries have fought revolutions, peaceful and not so peaceful, over the idea that power is not invested by God in a single person, but in fact is given to all of us to use wisely, soberly, and prudently in each other's mutual interest, cooperatively, uh, with the idea that, that, that this is a, a power, this is a, a set of powers and rights that, that we are given by God to be good stewards of. Now, this is an inherently radical notion. And, and if you are, in fact, someone who still believes that government should govern by consent of the governed and that our society should be a free association of equals, well, then you're still a revolutionary. Because a good chunk of this society that we have today, even here in America, and even more so in places like Western Europe, China, Japan, believe in something that's really not that far removed from the model of 
the, the, the aristocratic society we described earlier with the king on the top and the, the, the group of, of petty nobles around them and below them and, and, and everyone else below them. I mean, in, in the European Union, you don't have a king per se, but you still have a, a group of people who are, if not hereditary nobility, certainly the nobility of, uh, of the credentialed elites who are deemed to just be smarter and better at, at, at the whole process of, of taking care of all of our self-rule for us. You see that here in America, too, and I'm not going to say it's a progressive thing or a Democrat thing, but generally speaking, when you see someone saying, well, we should let the experts take care of it when the subject is not brain surgery, but is in fact things like how will our teach, uh, children be taught, how will our health care be administered, how will our taxes be uh, reformed, when you hear someone saying it's too complicated for the hoi polloi, for the, the, the mere mortals, for the commoners to understand. You're listening to someone who is talking the way someone in pre-American uh, political parlance would have spoken. You're speaking the way a theologian in, in pre-Christian theology would have spoken. The idea that some things are just too important, too complex, too difficult for mere mortals to understand is profoundly old-fashioned, and the idea that you and I, a couple of regular schnooks listening to, or in my case is speaking on, uh, a station in the suburbs of the Twin Cities, are capable of governing ourselves. That's the real revolution. And it is the parallels to the story of Christmas, the story of Christianity itself, the idea that, that power... And divinity can all divine down, can all boil down to individual human beings. In one case, a divine one. In all other cases, all 320 million of us people who are blessed with the divine right to rule ourselves and each other, if we're smart enough to do it, are equally revolutionary and equally worth celebrating this time of year as every time of year. My name is Mitch Berg. This is a special Northern Alliance Radio Network Christmas broadcast. Uh, I hope you and yours are having a, a wonderful holiday season here so far. I, I certainly wish, uh, wish the best upon all of you. When we come back, we're going to be talking about some historical parallels in the United States, historical times in United States history, when Christmas itself, the season, the event, has been absolutely vital in 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 the history of this country. It's important stuff, I think. More when we come back. This is the Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, The Patriot. Born is the King of Israel. The shepherds look up and they saw Angels we have heard on high Sweetly singing o'er the plains And the mountains in reply Echoing their Welcome back, Twin Cities and World. It's the Northern Alliance Radio Network, our Christmas special. 
Uh, welcome back, by the way. Always great to have you all here. And, and, and I say this uh, every year about this time. And one of the great blessings in my life is to be able to talk to each and every one of you uh, every Saturday afternoon, especially this time of year, uh, when it's my pride and, and privilege to say thank you for tuning in every year uh, to listen to our to our broadcast here. Brad King and myself uh, all all agree this is one of the great uh, joys of our lives, uh, uh, lives, all of which are blessed with <laughs> way more joy than I think a lot of us could have possibly expected. Uh, so thank you all for that. We're talking about uh, the, the historical parallels between Chris, uh, Christmas and America, especially the vision of America that conservatives hold. And this is not intended to be a politicization of Christmas. It's not. I'm looking for parallels. I'm not claiming ownership here. But on the other hand, the parallels are there. We talked about those in the, the last segment, uh, the parallels between the idea that, 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 that God himself could come to earth as a human and the idea then that, that really is inextricable from that, that the power that God gave to kings could just as easily be given to commoners, to people like you and I. And in fact, there was no such thing as nobility. To be a citizen was itself to be noble. It's an idea that shook the world to its core when it actually became the, the basis of a government. And there's another historical parallel there that leads us to one, uh, that leads us to another historical parallel, I should say, which I think is really important because every year, well, you you hear this constantly from people who are uh, who, who argue in some time, in many cases in good faith for the establishment clause, the the clause in the Constitution that guarantees against the establishment of state religion, which is an inherently good thing. But there are people who who extend from that and say America is not a Christian nation, and and there's a point to that. Is an is a nation? We are a nation that was has always been primarily Christian, and in fact is is probably more enthusiastically composed of people of faith than almost any other Western country today. You can think of very few that are more enthusiastically of faith than Americans in general are today. Perhaps the Poles. I mean, you have a hard time getting the Poles away from the Catholic Church, and, and thank goodness for it. It's, it's, it's brought them wonderful things, like their freedom in some respects over the last 30 years here, and God bless them for that as well. But there's a case to be made that, that we are not a, quote, Christian country, end quote, just a country made up of Christians. I, as a conservative, am fine with that. I don't want our country establishing a state religion. And yet... While America may not be, quote, Christian, end quote, as a nation, its central metaphor behind our creation is tied up in the Christian metaphor completely inextricably. You can't, wrap the, you can't unravel the two. And I think it, it, it is tied up with that for something that's also important for the Christian, Christmas season. Let's dial back to last hour. One of the six new types of cultural grinches that I was throwing brickbats at last hour was the group of people who, who like to, to correct you on the origins of Christmas. They'll say, well, Christmas is really just a pagan holiday. I mean, it's a pagan holiday. It's not even Christian. I mean, Christ wasn't even born in December. The Christ, Christian just appropriated the solstice. 
And that's, that's true. Historians say that, that Christ was likely not born very like almost almost completely unlikely to have been born on December 25th or even in the winter in Galilee. But that doesn't matter because when you think about it, just as Christmas as we observe it was not born Christian, either were any of us. We were all born into original sin. None of us Christians are not born. They are made, and, and, and really, they are made by themselves. That When people decide to declare that Christ is their Lord and Savior it, it's, and, and become baptized in the faith, you decide to be a Christian. You no more are born into Christianity than you are born into being a, a, a NASCAR driver. You have to make yourself a NASCAR driver or, 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 or a great violinist. Both of them are things that you just make, and just like that, no, the fact that that Christmas, Christmas as we celebrate today on December twenty fifth, may have been a pagan holiday, is the point. We were all pagan holidays before we were saved by Christ. Christianity always finds fixer uppers. And by the way, like Christians, Americans sin. Christianity is not about being perfect. It's about being forgiven and, 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 about, and about being able to achieve the Almighty, even though we are imperfect, even though we are fundamentally flawed. America is fundamentally flawed. We, we've had our flaws. We, you don't need to be reminded by the media that we were built, heavily built, around one huge flaw, the institution of slavery. We have sinned in this country, and we continue to sin in this country. We, we murder millions of babies every year. There's nothing about being a country, even a country where the bulk of the people are Christians, that makes it perfect. And yet, just as Christianity allows each and every one of us and individuals to atone for our sins and to still approach the Almighty and the hereafter with some hope of salvation, the entire American experiment is built around the idea that we are not perfect. We can never be perfect. Perfection is unachievable on this mortal coil. But we have the tools and means at our hands to atone for that, to learn from our mistakes, and do better in the future. Almost every country in the world has practiced slavery, if not every country, every society, every culture in the world. If you go back far enough, you'll find slavery being practiced. You will have a very hard time finding any country in the world that has worked as hard, as diligently, as consistently, and, and I think with as much integrity to atone for that history as the United States have. Go ahead. Ask the French if, if how they've atoned for their history of slavery in, 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 in the Caribbean and in Africa. Ask the Belgians about their history of slavery in sub-Saharan Africa. Ask the Dutch 
about their tradition of indentured servitude in sub-Saharan Africa and especially in Indonesia. These are countries that all practiced, if not slavery with a capital S, at least it's its awful first cousin. And and not all that terribly long ago. Forget about ja- Japan. Forget about Germany. <laughs> We're a country that 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 has at least adopted the Christian ideal that we know we're not perfect. We can never achieve perfection. That we can best we can hope for is to confess our sins, repent in the best way we can, make things as right as we can. And 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 try to move on in everyone's best interests, and that's like Christianity, and that's like the faith that was born, as the tradition says, thousands of years ago this weekend, and that's important. It's about the coming of redemption. the The redemptive power of Christmas is an, an integral part of America. And if you look through the history of America, that redemption is a part of the, the, the mythology of some of the most important, searingly vital events in the history of this country. Not just the, the larger ideas of, of the metaphor behind a, a, a divine right of power going down to all of us individuals, and, and, and not just about the, the idea that, that we're a society like Christianity itself that believes that it needs to occasionally humble itself and repent just a bit. Nobody tell Donald Trump that. I don't see him doing much repenting, but we'll see. You never know. But it's also a a country where a, a big part of our national mythology is built around the redemptive power of Christmas. Whether by accident or by design, it doesn't matter. Honestly, it all works about the same in my point of view, at least for purposes of, of the story I'm trying to tell you today. Uh, my name is Mitch Berg. Uh, my blog is shotinthedark.info, shotinthedark.info. I put out material just about every weekday, although I'll probably be taking Christmas Day off, as I do most years. But five days a week, I write about my favorite stories in politics, current events, pop culture, music, history, and a little bit of everything in between, if it grabs my fancy. Uh, this is the headliner edition of the Northern Alliance Radio Network, heard every Saturday from noon to 3, actually from 1 to 3 p.m. on AM 1280, The Patriot, uh, our special Christmas broadcast, uh, hoping you and yours all have a blessed Christmas or whatever holiday season you celebrate. We'll be back with more on the redemptive power of Christmas and the American story. When we come back on the Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, The Patriot. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Northern Alliance Radio Network, a special Christmas edition 
Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, blessings of the season to all of you, whatever your beliefs. My name is Mitch Berg, my blog, shotinthedark.info. We've talked so far this show about, I don't know, some of the perversions of the meaning of Christmas that, that our culture is starting to embrace. We talked a little bit about what I think are some of the, the philosophical parallels between the season and the country we live in, and some of the some of the social parallels, and really the, the metaphorical parallels between the season and this country. And and honestly, I when I say this country, I mean the traditional version of what this country is supposed to mean. Uh, something that could be has been called classical liberal interpretation of what America is about. And of course, if you listen to this broadcast, you know that when I say classical liberal, I generally mean modern American conservative. I'm not trying to politicize all of it, though. I'm truly not. Um, you can believe me. You cannot. But it's the it's a fact. I'm not. But there are things about the Christmas season that are almost impossible to unwrap from elements in American history. Uh, when you consider that uh, Christmas, if you're a Christian, and if you observe the, the, the true meaning of the season, is about redemption. It's about the idea that the world can be reborn, that, that mankind can be reborn. And if mankind can be reborn in, in the person of a, of a baby in impoverished manger in Bethlehem, that humanity itself, and you and I as individuals, not to mention the country we live in, can be reborn through just as humble and yet profoundly powerful means. And I take heart in saying that because we've seen that in the history of this country. Three episodes I want to talk about briefly in the time I have remaining here that I think are, are th things that, even as famously unemotional as I, a Scandinavian-American boy, am, they still verge on making me emotional because uh, they're so profoundly important, both for the history of this country and for the history of this this world around us. One of them was a, a took place on an extremely cold winter morning in 1776. Uh, 1776 is most famous to most of you and to those of us in our society who studied history is the year that the Declaration of Independence was signed, and that still gets the big headlines. And we have a big party for it on July 4th. What what a lot of people shamefully don't know anymore is that. After the 4th of July, like around the beginning of August and into September, things went south real fast, literally and figuratively. The British invaded uh, New York. They landed, staged an amphibious attack at Brooklyn. They crushed George Washington's army, drove him across the East River, and then humiliated him in Manhattan. They killed or captured the majority of his army. And, and the, the ones that were left, many of them deserted and went home. Because winter was coming on, they hadn't been paid, and by the way, it looked like the revolution may well have been lost. They chased George Washington from Manhattan across the Hudson River, from Fort Lee, New Jersey, all the way down New Jersey to the Delaware River. And, and George Washington evacuated what was left of the Continental Army, basically a quarter of the force that had been with him on July 4th at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, about a fourth of that army was left on Christmas Eve, 1776. And it had been a cold, miserable winter so far. 
and the army that was left with Washington was suffering mightily. And and the Continental Congress, which was based in Philadelphia at the time, was suffering some anxiety of its own because just six months earlier, five months earlier, they had pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their eternal honor uh, to this American Revolution, which in those days carried a death sentence. Rebelling against the King of England was not something that kings who ruled by divine right took kindly to. And the founding fathers justifiably worried that they might be called upon to pay up on that bet. Never in American history has the American experiment hung so carefully and so, so closely in the balance. One more push was all it was going to take the Brits to snuff out the American experiment. And yet, overnight on Christmas Eve, George Washington gathered up what was left of his army, hijacked a bunch of coal barges from the Schuylkill River, uh, from the coal mines up the stream, and, and, and brought them downriver, and, and overnight paddled across the icy Delaware River, manhandled a small cannon out of one of the barges, and snuck up essentially on a camp full of Hessians who were watching him across the river, who had been celebrating Christmas and were hung over in the morning and weren't capable of doing much, ambushed them, routed them, sent them fleeing, and then went on, marched on to Princeton, New Jersey, and a few days later routed a larger, more professional, more prepared British force. It was just two battles in most history books. But it was a Christmas miracle because without those two victories, we might all still be speaking British if you catch my drift. I I do believe in miracles on Christmas. I do. And that was one of them. There was no reason that George Washington should have won, that, that the American Revolution should have prevailed, that the American Revolution should have survived in the Central Atlantic states. It was tactically, logistically, really unfeasibly impossible. And yet it happened. On the day of the miracle of the birth of the Christ, the day of the miracle of the salvation of the American Revolution happened. Fast forward a few hundred years and a half. It was Christmas 1945. World War II was almost won, or so everyone thought, and indeed it was, but there had been a terrible setback. The Germans had managed to, the Nazis in this case, had managed to save up a force of, of troops, tanks, and, and fuel and launch one last mighty counterattack, and it was a brutal counterattack. It caught the Americans by surprise, caught a bunch of absolutely green American troops and some war-weary veterans completely by surprise, bulldozed over them, surrounded thousands of Americans. Some of the greatest surrenders in American history uh, took place at the what came calls the Battle of the Bulge. Now, if you've watched Band of Brothers, the epic miniseries, you know that an American Airborne Division, the 101st, and some other American troops held out in a town called Bastogne. But that by no means was that a sure thing, even at the time. And on Christmas morning, the commander of one of the German divisions that surrounded Bastogne, there were seven of them up against one American division that was low on ammunition, low on food, and lower still on everything else, sent in uh, an emissary to talk about negotiating the surrender of the of the garrison. And the general who was in charge, he was in charge of the airborne 101st Airborne's artillery, a fellow named Tony McAuliffe, for lack of a better term, wrote back nuts, which 
doesn't mean much back then and today. Back then, it was a little more pointed term. Not quite profane, but certainly pointed as a way of saying, take off, hoser. The Germans didn't get that. They had to have that interpreted for them. But in a way, it was its own Christmas miracle, the fact that Americans held out against those odds at that time. At that time of the year, you can chalk it up to a lot of factors. I'll accept all of them. But if you don't believe in Christmas miracles, seeing that episode, I'm, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to, to see why. No, I'm sorry, to see why not. Another Christmas miracle, maybe not a miracle, but just an incredibly inspirational story that I think is absolutely inseparable from the story of America happened when I was in high school. It was the darkest days of the of the Russian crackdown, or the, I should say the communist crackdown in Poland, as uh, the solidarity uprising, the rising of the of the Soviet uh, the of the Polish labor movement that sought to uh, reform the communist government of Poland, and got stomped on hard by the. But by the Polish army in this case, which, by the way, has been said in some cases to have been a blessing disguise. The Polish army clamped down hard on the on solidarity uh, to prevent a Pol- uh, Russian invasion of Poland. It may have been true, but hundreds died. Thousands were imprisoned uh, without charge, held in camps around Poland without uh, any access to lawyers or their families or anybody else over the holiday season. And over that holiday season, a fellow named Rommel Spasalski, Spasalski was the Polish ambassador to the United States, uh, had an epic crisis of faith. And it was his first, really, because he'd grown up his entire life as a committed communist. His father had been a communist, a uh, member of the communist resistance to the Nazis who'd died in Gestapo custody. And like a good communist, he'd grown up very, very atheist. But his wife, a woman named Wanda Spasowski gradually grew on him, grew on him over the years, and, and uh, Wanda, being a devout Catholic, managed to wear her husband down, as wives will tend to do with husbands over the decades. And, and by 1980, uh, 81 rather, Romwald Spasowski was a committed Catholic and a Christian. And on December 25th, 1981, Romwald Spasowski defected to the United States. And it was an epic event in the history of both countries. And I want to talk about that briefly when we come back as we discuss the miracles of the season, both in the world and in America, really. This is an episode that had a huge effect on me personally, and I hope it does on you as well. This is the Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, The Patriot. It's a Christmas broadcast. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you all come back for one more segment on the Northern Alliance, AM 1280, The Patriot. With every Christmas card I write, may your days be merry. Be 
Welcome back to Twin Cities and World. It's the Northern Alliance Radio Network, a special Christmas broadcast this weekend on the Northern Alliance. Thank you all for tuning in. Thanks, and God bless you all uh, this holiday season. Uh, I hope you all have as wonderful a holiday season as you could possibly imagine. We've been talking about the role of Christmas in American history and, and how important it has been, both as, as, a, as a moral beacon uh, to us as Americans, as, as a parallel for Americans to live up to, and, and quite honestly, as, as a setting for some of America's greatest miracles. And I was talking about one that doesn't get nearly the press it deserves, and yet it was a pivotal moment for me. And I remember one of the I remember it being one of the moments that most closely tied what America should be together with the holiday season. Uh, before the segment I was ta- before the break I should say I was talking about uh the defection of uh, Ambassador Romwald Spasowski of Poland uh, to the United States on December 23rd of 1981. Now, this was at the height of the Soviet crackdown on the Solidarity Labor Movement at a time when when nobody on earth believed that it would lead eventually to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism and the freedom of Eastern Europe. This was all a decade in the future, and nobody, but nobody believed that that was the eventual end result. Anyway, we talked about uh, Ambassador Spasowski, who had grown up as a committed communist, hence he was a ambassador to the United States under the communist government, who, who over time, and under the influence of his wife Wanda Spasowska, had become a committed Catholic, and who saw what was going on in his home country of Poland, where gangs of, of government-sanctioned thugs were, were beating the tar out of protesters and arresting people in, in the night and hauling them off to camps, just like in the glory days of communism all over again, with, with the deaths of hundreds of people in these protests. And he decided he couldn't take any more. Even though he was at the peak, near the peak of Polish communist life, he and his wife Wanda left. They defected. They walked across the street to the FBI uh, from the Polish embassy and defected the United States. And they took this seriously. They held a trial, sentenced him and his wife to death in absentia. They had no luck getting to him, but that was uh, serious business in those days. And... It was a couple days later, during his annual Christmas broadcast, that Ronald Reagan brought up the incident. And now, presidential Christmas broadcasts tend to be pretty fluffy, gauzy things, and they should be, for the most part. This is not a time to politicize things if you can possibly avoid it. And most presidents have been good at it. And when I say that most presidential Christmas broadcasts are gauzy, fluffy, and forgettable, that's a good thing. You shouldn't have to remember the president jabbering on Christmas. You should remember time with your family. But this was different. This was an extraordinary time. Ronald Reagan, God bless him, recognized it. And he urged every American in that Christmas broadcast, that I do remember watching, even though I was a young liberal, and was reacting with the fear that I had been programmed by my, the people and uh, my liberals that surrounded me at that time of my life to, to fear Ronald Reagan and to loathe what he stood for. I saw his request that night on that Christmas broadcast that in addition to the political sanctions that he ordered against the communist government, he asked every American to light a candle for Poland in their window. And around and about my hometown, I saw a few of them as I walked around, as I, as I walked to and from work, and as I, as I wandered around the town. 
on the night uh, on, on Christmas night and some of the nights thereafter. And it it's while I'll stop a little short of calling it a Christmas miracle, I'll say it was one of those things that impressed me with the wonder not only of the season but of what this country could be. The idea that this country could could interrupt its celebration, a, a celebration that had been even then people complained about how it had been profaned by commercialism so terribly, even at that point in history. And yet they could take time out to think about a people 4,000 miles away that they could scarcely have known much about other than what they saw on the TV. And the outpouring had its effect. The Russians realized that invading Poland would be a terrible idea because the American people were paying attention. And when the American people are paying attention, you don't go invading people. And when that happened, the people of Poland realized that someone was out there watching for them. And they kept the faith. And they held that faith through 10 very, very difficult years ending eventually with much struggle, with immense travail in the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of communism, which itself was a miracle of biblical proportion. And I'm not going to say it started on that Christmas night in 1981 that I witnessed in my own little way in my own little town as I wandered around looking at people's front windows and the candles that people had placed out there for Poland. But I'm not going to deny it either. Because Christmas is a time of miracles, and America is a place that has throughout its entire history bred miracles. And so why not see the miracles when they're there? I started with the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to finish with the Gospel of Luke. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest of heavens, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they turned off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up all those things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen were just as they had been told. And so in this cynical era, I hope that each of you in your own way can do as Mary did, to treasure up all these things, all these things about about the world, about faith, about about what's good about this place and this time and this country and this group of 320 million people we share it with and ponder on them in your heart for a while here. And like the shepherds, perhaps glorify, praise God and and perhaps the idea that God gave to each of us, that each of us is to some extent the king or queen of our own destinies, an idea that is inextricably tied up with this country that we live in and on this holiday season, it's just one of the, the heaps of things that we all have to be thankful and grateful for. 
as I am thankful and grateful for the opportunity to talk to each and every one of you every Saturday afternoon from 1 to 3 on AM 1280 The Patriot. My name, Mitch Berg, from my family to yours, God bless you all. God bless America. Merry Christmas. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.